This is Paul Robinson. You're listening to Starseed, an intrepid adventure with Mark Glenn Moore. Welcome back. This is the second part of our interview with author Dan Harari. Dan's new book, After They Came, is about visitation from Pleiadians and their involvement and interaction with us, the Earthlings. Enjoy. What do you think in my book when I have uh, the aliens gifting Jonathan the lead character? They, they gift him two. They give him two gifts. One is a dream, a dream machine, which can record human dreams when you're sleeping, and then in the next morning you can play them back and watch them. I love that. That's just brilliant. You know, I really love that. I also like the the fact that your character. So just to, but this Jonathan Michael Tuckerman called John or JT right. went, uh, it was brought up and had to ask specifically to the Palladians of what humanity needs. And they only responded to his specific request. And I think that's just brilliant. It's it's just brilliant because it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me because the Pleiadians that I've interacted with do not want to interfere in our evolution. They want to guide us and help us, and they're mostly behind the scenes. And it just it said to me that I need to ask more direct questions than I have been. Wow. And one well, of the things they took out of the book. For me, it, for me, it was intuit, intuitive. I was... I wrote this book as a tribute to my love for my father. That's the big picture. I came up with a character based roughly loosely on my life. Lead character, he's miserable, he's depressed, hates his life. He's done everything he wanted to do. Decides to swim out to sea, drown himself on his 70th birthday. He just wants to be dead. His kids don't talk to him. His business failed. Everything sucks. So as he's drowning, an enormous ship comes out of the Pacific, Beams him on board. He's naked and drowning. They save his life at the last possible moment. They, the ship flies slowly over all of Los Angeles, let, uh, hovers over Dodger Stadium. Now, at Dodger Stadium, by the time it gets there, all the media trucks and military and police and ambulance and fire trucks and sirens and cameras the lights, they're all going to Dodger Stadium because this thing from another world is going to Dodger Stadium. And that's where they meet the beautiful, tall, male, white white hair, blue-eyed um, alien named Jorthon, and this beautiful, equally beautiful woman named Kalissa. And, and they say, we're, don't be afraid of us. We're, we love mankind. We've been coming here for tens of thousands of years. We're here to help you. Um, we've, we've, we've helped to seed uh, your race. But, but here's the catch. This guy, and now this, this, this guy, the, you know, he's naked. Guy from this from the ocean, he's like flop. He's like in this ray of light, flopping around like a fish. And I said, "We're only going to work through him. We have a relationship with this man, and you bring your problems to this guy. We will work only through this guy." Okay. So then they slowly lower him onto second base. They go on board. The ship takes off. Now he's on second base, naked, on his seventieth birthday, mm-hmm. in the Dodger Stadium, and all of the world's press is right there. He wakes up and he looks and he goes, what the hell is happening to me? He has no idea what's happening. He doesn't know these aliens. He doesn't know. The last thing he knew, he was drowning. So the whole book 
is 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 a is the dichotomy of this guy wanted to be dead, and these almost angelic figures came, saved his life, turned not only his life around, but but helped all of mankind with, with all these huge issues. I, I call it close encounters means it's a wonderful life. To me, that's that expresses this book. Yeah, that's amazing. In uh, in Kabbalah, in Kabbalah, however you say it, uh, uh, the angelic stuff. It's kind of it's funny how uh, the uh, the parallel to that in the, the angelic help in in that world in that echelon only responds if you ask. You have to be pointedly asked for help because they're hands off. It's kind of the same deal where they're not supposed to really intervene. You know, the world's supposed to proceed as, as it is, and they can help if specifically asked. You know, right? And that's weird how that is the same. Well, it's like, you know, it's like I dream a genie, right? You know, yeah. uh, Larry Hagman had a genie. She would only do his, his wishes. He had, to, he had to say, genie, I want you to make me a cheese salad. Right. So in, in my case, the character goes, aliens, I want you to get rid of nuclear weapons on the Earth for all time. And okay, and they do. Wow. You know, uh, aliens, uh, it's enough already with human disease. No more cancer, leukemia, AIDS, COVID, no more disease. Okay, we'll use our technology. And I just have the, the construct every month for the first year that they're on Earth. They meet, he presents to them a major challenge for mankind and these aliens their technologies and their brilliance they're able to to solve or, or ease most of these problems almost and, you know um re, 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 revise uh, revise global warming right reverse global warming okay nothing serious right <laughs> wow so that's, that's that's what they were doing and it's literally what mark is like doing i mean he's trying to figure out questions because I mean, that's part of the issue, right? You have to be extremely concise about what kind of questions you, he, you're telepathically, telepathically in touch. Correct? Yeah, and one of the questions that I did ask early on in these experiences with the Palladians um, is, is about nuclear weapons. And I was told that they have the capability and the will to intervene on on some major nuclear event that they have that that can be outside of their stepping back and not um you know not interfering they will step in on that and they explained it to me and i i i described this at the the talk at mufon or the ufo con that it's like a pond that's really calm, and when a nuclear event, whether it's a test or a dropping, is like throwing a pebble in that pond, and it ripples all the way out to the shore. Well, that's what happens when we release one here. It ripples out throughout the universe, and it affects, it affects other things that we have no understanding of. It affects things out in the universe that we don't even know exist. But it's, it's part of them not wanting us to blow ourselves up basically so it's very profound but that was one question i did ask specifically
Now, in your book, there's a twist, though. So, everybody's asking um, JT, why did they pick you? Right. Why, why you out of everybody? The guy <laughs> that had a loser life and wanted to kill himself on sleeping pills or whatever, and the biggest bottle of vodka he, he could buy. Right. And, and so, he doesn't know the answer to that. So then he finally realizes, well, maybe I need to ask that question. And that is a big twist in the book. I would love that, that twist. I didn't want him to know right away. You know, yeah, really think about it. You know, for the most magnificent be- beings who have ever revealed themselves in the history of mankind, ever, really, uh, certainly in the modern era. With, with cell phones and, and broadcasting. So wh- whoever, if they came tomorrow on the White House lawn, within an hour, everyone on the planet would know that they're here. So they came, They come in the modern era. They picked this schlub, this loser schlub guy, who just can't do everything he touches turns to shit. And and, 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 and why? There has to be, there had to be a reason. That's how I wove into, a lot, years earlier, his dad, I made his dad, Marcus. You know, you read the book. Right? No, we don't. We don't have to give away the whole thing. But I just wanted to. I, I, I'm, I'm tipping it off. I guess I don't know. <laughs> but well, whatever you're comfortable I, telling. I made this guy's father the hero, even though this guy's father is dead. On page one, he's already long dead. I made his father the hero of the whole story, because decades earlier, the lead character finds out that his dad had a relationship. With one of the aliens. That's all. I, that's all I'll say. Before before JT lead character was even born. So I thought that's how I'm going to honor my dad because I just because you know like I said when I was waiting for my sandwich. That's when it came to me that perhaps my dad was involved with UFO reverse engineering. And so, it goes it goes back to what I was discussing earlier about the military connection. It seems to go through military families. And so your book kind of illustrated that your the character's uh, lead character's dad had a profound interaction that led to the whole future of of the, the main character right. that he had no knowledge of. Right. Right. Yeah. Well written. <laughs> it's just the best thing I've ever. I, I could never write anything better. It, it was divinely inspired. Truly, it was. I know, and I know that I'm very grateful. Whoever gave me the book, if it was my dad or. I recently, oh, Mark, remember at UFO Con, there was a lady, uh, you, you, I believe you had a reading. She was at the end of our row, the very end. Yeah, I know you're talking about it. I didn't get a reading, but oh, I, yes. I think I had a conversation. I had a, a reading with her, and she told me a few things that were interesting and a few things that were not correct. But she said I had a spirit guide, and I said, oh, really? And I, I had a feeling who it was. It was either my thought, it was either my grandfather or a friend who died years ago. She said, your spirit guide was from a past life. He was a master. You were a student in in ancient Rome. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, if I'm going to have a spirit guide from ancient Rome, who was my teacher? Okay, I'll go with that. So maybe that's who gave me the the download for the Mm -hmm. book. So what's next for the book? Uh, Did did you get the rights? Are you going to make a movie? Well, that's what people are asking me. 
most least of all my mother. She goes, you met Spielberg. Call him and tell him. I go, Mom, I met Spielberg 13 years ago for half an hour. Mm-hmm. We talked about his mother's blintzes. I'm going to talk to because I used to eat at his mother's restaurant. You know, of course, I'd love it to be a movie. Uh, right now, I'm just out there hawking it. I, I did Jimmy Church. I've done, I did uh, Jeremy Scott. I, I've done at least 30 interviews around the world so far in a month's time. And I have at least another 30 to go. I did the MUFON podcast the other day mm. with uh, Richard Beckler. Mm-hmm. I'm going to speak at, U of, at MUFON LA. Earl Gray Anderson is the new uh, head of MUFON LA. He's going to have me do his talk in May. So right now I'm, I'm promoting the book the best I can, PR-wise and promotion-wise. I went to AlienCon. I gave books to – I handed a book to Eric Wondanik, and I literally handed it to him. And he goes, oh, after they came, I haven't read this one yet. I go, Eric, it just came out the other Yeah, day. right. March 10th, I believe, right? Something early March. March 1st. March 1st, March 1st yeah. And, and, so I met, could... and I met Eric March 4th. So I handed Eric <laughs> – said, Eric, it just came out a few days ago. I literally handed Eric on Danik in my book. What the ink's honor. not dry. It's it's still wet. Um, Think about that when an honor was for me to give Eric on Danik. Yeah, yeah. And then you got Nick Pope to do uh, uh, basically a blurb for it. Nick Pope did a blurb. Um, Richard Dolan, Travis Walton. Kathleen Martin, you know her from Betty and Barney Hill. Kathleen Martin, do you know who she is? I know of her. I don't know her. Oh, oh, you don't know? Do you know the Betty and Barney Hill story? I do know the story. Okay. So Kathleen Martin, lovely lady, she gave me a a quote. It was too late to go into the book, but I'm using it for PR. She's the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Oh, okay. She's the surviving niece. She has been telling the Betty and Barney Hill story for, what, 50 years. Lovely lady. So she and I are friends now. Nick Pope and I sort of became friends. I owe him a dinner next time he's in L.A. I'm going to take him out for dinner. Um, Travis Walton from Fire in the Sky, he gave me a wonderful quote. He said my book should be a movie. Travis Walton told me. Nice. On the back cover, Mark, you'll see it. It says it would make a good foundation for me. Well, when I, you so graciously, well, I traded a CD for your book. I'll buy the next one. Um, you were so gracious. And I walked away at the event and I read the first five pages and I walked back up to you and I said, this is a movie. It's got to be a movie. And I've been talking to one of my friends who's kind of connected in, in that way. And before this event, and I'm saying, we need a good story about the benevolent aliens, a good alien story that involves the humans to help, you know, and you wrote it. You know, the book I was visualizing, it's already done. You did it. Hi, this is Sandy with Olanapua here in Maui, Hawaii. I own an Ocean View penthouse studio condo here at the beautiful Kanapali Shores Resort in West Maui. This oceanfront property has two pools, a restaurant, a full bar, a day spa, and on-site activity planners who will book your day trips all over the island. In addition to walking distance food shops, the resort is located just a 15-minute drive to the town of Lahaina, where you will find plenty of restaurants, shops, and live music. To check room rates and availability for your Hawaiian getaway at Aston Kanapali Shores, Unit 936, go to www.vrbo/124-2558 
Again, that's www.vrbo slash 124-2558. Hope to see you there. Aloha. It was divinely inspired. It truly was. And plus, you know, it came out, my book came out the week after we shot down three UFOs over, over Wild, Canada. yeah. Canada. And with the China balloon. I mean, so my timing was really quite remarkable. Mm. Um, yeah, I would love for this to be a movie, of course. But right now my publisher goes, sell more books, sell more books. You're killing me, sell more books. <laughs> so I'm doing every interview I can do. We, we've also, we've spoke about how unfortunate it is like in a lot of the channels the the alien encounter channels and history and whatever it is it's all built on fear you know and the people are terrified when they show and even that fella at ufo you know the, the whole thing was about his trauma as a kid and it's not about the actual you know maybe this is you know the way for us out of this mess well i sold a good number of my books at alien con in pasadena mm. And I sold I sold ten at UFO Con in San Francisco. But everyone, every single person who bought my book at both places said, "Oh, a book about benevolent aliens? Really? What a great idea! Why? You know, War of the Worlds, Independence Day, yeah, uh, the Twilight Zone episode called To Serve Man when they when they eat yeah, they, they eat, eat humans. Them. They're right. going to eat humans. You know, why do aliens have to necessarily kill us and eat us?" Well, e you know? even even the day that the Earth stood still, they came in peace, pretty much, and we just, you know, we shot. Well, they came right. They came in peace, but they did. They turned off the electricity around the world for a while. Yeah. I forget how long. So that, that wasn't good, right? <laughs> yeah, I love that movie too. That movie was so good. Well, it it it's a, it's, yours is like the, the the immediately when I think of Dodger Dodger Stadium, I, it flashes me to that. You know, as a kid seeing that movie, I was like so profound. I, Dodger Stadium is from Day the Earth Stood Still. I have a scene where a little alien is, is sick in a bathroom and the bathtub. Oh, I stole that from E.T. That's right out of E.T. Um, Spielberg was recently interviewed by um, Stephen Colbert, of all people. Okay. And it was suggested by Colbert that uh, he does E.T. too. And uh, Spielberg absolutely said, no way can't redo it but there has to be another benevolent alien movie there has to be from somewhere somewhere somehow well he'd be the guy and close encounters at the end the aliens sure. at the end they're benevolent yeah, yeah. so may, maybe you need to take your your mom's advice and, and give your old friend a little ring here's how i could do that and i actually hear i could do the following you, you guys are familiar with hollywood to a degree you know i've, I've been in hollywood for 43 years i've been there um, Variety Magazine, right? Variety Magazine. It's a print weekly magazine. Everybody reads it. Hollywood Reporter is the other. I'm going to, at some point this year, I'm going to take a full page ad, color ad. Ouch. And I'm thinking about op an open letter to Steven Spielberg from Dan Harari. Wow. Steven, we met briefly in 2010. Da, 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 da. Um, I've written a book. Benevolent aliens. Look up at these major UFO people have given me these quotes: Richard Dolan, Travis Walton, Kathleen Martin, right. Nick Pope. Right. And uh, you know, ET was benevolent. Close Encounters, your aliens benevolent. This is your. This is the end of your trilogy. My book could be the end, of the third, third in the in, in your trilogy. Right. It would make the logical. It would be the logical third move. 
So that's an expensive way to do it, though. <laughs> you you know, now that you're kind of, it seems to me that you're kind of in contact with this other side, whether how consciously you know it or not. And you can kind of, just like the way that Mark essentially uh, communicates with this other side, he, he puts it in his head and it gets to them, you know, and you can put that in your head, you know, this, get this to Steve, Steven Spielberg somehow, because your book's out in the world and just like all information when it's out, it's it's out there. You know, it's for everybody. It's accessible. It's accessible. Yeah. So, if I did it, listen. If I did an ad, it it would cost maybe six grand. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a it's lot. It's a lot, but you know what? I I would do that. I'm, I'm probably going to. Now, let me ask you your advice. Should I do it to Steven Spielberg or an open letter to Hollywood? Just an open letter to Hollywood and have every have it be open to anybody. Maybe to Hollywood, but I would start. Well, I was friends for 40 years with Spielberg's publicist. He retired. And he's, I think he's 93 now. Yikes. Yikes. I used to email him all the time. So he's, I, I can't, I can't go there. Right. Well, somebody's out there. Somebody's listening, you know. I, I could, I could, I have an email for someone at Spielberg's office, but the, here's the problem. I don't have a, I don't have a Hollywood agent really to submit to a major producer, you have to have an go through an agent. Right. I don't have an agent. They'd say, sorry, we can't accept your submission. That's what they would say. Well, you know somebody who's got one, and you might have an agent, and that your if your book does well, then you'll get a literary agent soon, and you take that channel. But anyway, uh, once again, the universe seems to like it when you let the universe handle it. The more you try to control it, the, the more the universe goes, oh, this guy's got no faith. You know, yeah, you have faith. Advice. You're, you're right. You're absolutely Mark, when Mark's life should be a movie. That's for sure. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or Mark, you should be the subject of a documentary. Yes. It's it darting out as a, as a book, but the podcast was, the first step for so I could listen to how this sounds, you know, first, first of all, when I, you know, Paul and I have been working together as musicians for quite a while. We're very good friends. And I brought him this concept and I said, so what do you feel about the subject matter of aliens? He goes, I'm, I'm open. And so we've been downloading all my experiences, you know, event by event. And I just wanted to know how crazy it sounded, you know, how it's so fantastical. And, but the more, I bring out these um, events that have happened, the better I'm getting at telling and talking about it. It's just been, it's been very fascinating, but it's, um, yeah, I'm putting it down into words now. And he's actually been tasked with this, with this lia liaison job, right? So it's really neat to, ha he, he was so shy about it because obviously it sounds so far out, but you know, it's a pretty big message. <laughs> but you know, unlike the book, I'm not the only one that has had these experiences. There were other human children and adults when I was having these experiences every time. So there's, there's, uh, I don't know how many. I want to find them. I want to know who who had these experiences. Barbara, uh, right? Isn't she? Uh, they thought they possibly met on a ship. Yeah, Barbara was one of the speakers. Uh, la uh, this, yeah, this time uh, uh, we met her last year, and she had a very, very similar story and experience. 
and I asked her, she came over for dinner and I asked her to bring her uh, a picture of her when she was uh, a young, younger woman. And it's exactly the picture of who I saw as one of the uh, female adults on the, on the craft as close as it could get. And she remembers me as a child and being taught that, that we were all there being taught. It was a, a, an education. She's the first person I met that I, tr- I, I truly believe we were brought up together, but we were, I was little and she was already an adult. Mark, did they, did they tell you now that you're an adult? Did they tell you when they're going to come visit you again? They, they don't put their, um, they don't put their agenda on my schedule. Unfortunately, do they come to you in dreams? Um, they come to me. Uh, well, the, they come physically and and bring me aboard. And then after my twenties, then that really spanned off. They've rescued me um, at one time where I was actually not invited. I was actually taken, um, and I was I was rescued. And that's a whole other story. I don't want to fill it up right now. Uh, they put implants. I've had one removed and I've always, I've always been curious why the implants, because I'm a human terrestrial being, I'm easy to find, you know, there must be something else. But then after this one event, it occurred to me, well, but if I'm taken off the planet by another group of extraterrestrials, how will they find me? And so now that, that kind of makes sense. Did you like in my book, I had the GAT had been uh, tracked his whole life. Yeah. Yep. And he, it's, he, he it's, never, never knew it. He never knew it. It's identical to my experience, but I, you know, I know, I know where the implants are. And, and uh, the newest one was put in. I was in, I wasn't even brought up on the ship. I was uh, in a hotel room in Boston meeting with the Trader Joe's company and two tall Palladians and not in spaceships, but in more like robes just entered the room. Wow. Doors locked, everything woke me up and, and put an implant in. And they said, don't worry, you know us. And, and I immediately calmed down and go, oh, yeah, I know you. That's so fantastic. Um, Do you have any photos or videos of these visitors? N- uh, no, but I'm, I, I've been asking for evidence. I oh. want... Hmm? Oh, about the five questions. Yeah, so we're talking with Paul Hynek and... He has friends in the scientific community, and they approach this uh, subject from a different place. And uh, when we were discussing this, you know, I I said to him, I want proof too. You know, I have my proof, but if I'm going to start talking about this, I don't want to just tell stories. I want to actually have some proof. And uh, Paul Robinson here said, well, why don't you give Mark five questions to ask the Palladians from the scientific community? That only they could answer. That, That yeah, that they that would give the scientist uh, some sense of oh maybe something's there, okay. and, and so it, it took months. And Paul got back uh, back to me, and he listed these five questions, which Paul I, Heineck. Paul Heineck, um, which I, I I showed at the presentation at the uh, UFO con. But I told Paul when I got on the phone with him, I said I can't ask these in English. I have to interpret what your scientists are asking and then put it into a thought and that will have to be i have to go into a meditative spot you know i have a nice quiet 
uh, place on the top of Mount Tamalpais up here in Marin County where I I can feel very a good it's a good place to channel. And so right now I'm interpreting those five questions. And then uh, when I'm ready, I'm going to go up and I'm going to project them as just complete thoughts. So five different complete thoughts and see what comes back. I mean, I'm sure the biggest hurdle in your entire life has been, Mark, where's your proof? I mean, you've heard that 4,000 times, I'm sure. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Well, no one's been asking me because I've been talking about it until just this last year and a half. So, but yeah, now that's come up. Well, right? when you were well, well, when you were five, ten, fifteen, were you not telling your friends, "Hey, you know, buddy, you're not going to believe that I'm incredible"? Did you tell your best friends? Yeah, but then I let it go because it it just they. they couldn't relate. It's like if, if you say you traveled to the New World from Europe and you got to the Americas and you came back, you won't believe the Americas. I don't know. Well, if you haven't come, you, it, okay. you'd have nothing to to relate to. And it's similar to what you said. I mean, you probably told your friends about the experience you had when you were little within. And there's something that just doesn't allow that information into their space. You know, there's like, and I don't know if it's controlled by the Pleiadians or, or what, but there's kind of that idea of when the when the student's ready the teacher will come when the if you're if the if the information's too mind-blowing you can't accept it you can't even receive it and that and this seems to be the case for a lot of this stuff i mean if they're flying over a, a mass of people in new jersey a bunch of people saw it and did they block all that out from all those people or something like that happened actually right well, yeah, a couple things on that. One is I never, I never told my mother. Right. When I in 1970, I was 14. My other brother was 10. My little brother was six. Okay, so six count him out. But the 10 year old brother, and my mother never. So yep. when I wrote this book and I told you, you saw a UFO with your father. <laughs> I never. Told, I never well, we were pretty close. Yeah. We lived in the same house. At fourteen, your mom's like your best friend. Uh, why? Why would? Why would? I, why, did, why would I not tell my mother? It, it boggles my mind, you guys. And then I never asked my dad a day later, a week later, a month later. Hey, dad, remember that silver, you know, pyramid we saw from Egypt above in the sky? Oh, yeah, I don't want to talk about. It. I never even asked him. I. It just completely. It was like a stone that skipped the water. Okay, now here's. I do have an update on this. Two weeks ago, I was profiled in the Daily Mail UK newspaper. You probably you may have seen that link to that story. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I got I got emails from all over the world. People who read that story. One of the emails is from a guy from New Jersey, and he said, "Hi, Dan. My siblings and I read your story in the Daily Mail." He said, "You're not going to believe this, but he said my three older siblings saw the same silver V." in New Jersey in March 1970 that you saw with your father. And they thought they'd been, they thought all these years they were crazy. No one ever believed them until they saw your article. Thank you for, for validating their sighting. Wow. I got that email last week. But they, they remembered it the whole time, though. They weren't. They, it looks like they remembered it. It looked like they remembered it. It was Tinton Falls. It was a couple of towns over from my town. They had the right March. They had March 1970. It was the same month, the same year, a couple of towns over. This thing was so huge. I'm sure it was seen by multiple people. How, how big do you think it was?
I would, if I had to guess, I'd say, you know, so it's a V, right? It's two, right. two yeah. wings. So each wing, I'd say, was maybe like two school buses in size. Wow. Fairly large. Yeah. It was, it was like a, a good, big... it was a good hardy size. It wasn't, wasn't like a little frisbee. It was, it was pretty hardy. Big fighter jet or a, or a, or a bomber almost. Completely incongruous with a, with a, with my New mm, Jersey wow. neighborhood. It's just completely incongruous. Wow. What else we got, Mark? Anything else you want to ask? That's this has been fun, Dan. Nice yeah, this. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm so glad we met. Um, yeah, yeah. The story is just fantastic, and um, but I also did uh, looking into this. Uh, so Hugh Hefner, huh? Well, that's the Hollywood side of my life. Yeah. So yeah. Last, well, last year I wrote my first book. This is my second book. Actually, my first book is called Flirting with Fame. Uh, I've been a Hollywood publicist for 40 years. If you see the pictures on the walls, all those pictures are in my book. It's uh, Spielberg, me, Seinfeld, Tom Hanks, Stallone, Kirk Douglas, and Margaret Alice Cooper, Hugh Hefner, Brian Wilson. I've, I've, I've met many, many dozens of the biggest stars in the world. Hugh Hefner, yeah. So my first PR job in Hollywood was um, 83, 84, 85. I was the publicist for the Playboy channel. And I had just gotten married, so I had the worst timing of any straight man who ever lived. Oh boy, that sounds like torture. The, the worst, the worst timing, absolutely the worst. Because I knew these gorgeous playmates. I knew them. Some of them became friends of mine, and they'd be coming with their long hair. They'd come in my office. I had a beautiful office. They'd bang their hair and their go-go boots and their mini skirts, sitting on my couch in my office, flirting with me. And my wife would call. Which which girl is in there, Miss May or Miss June? <laughs> my wife, every single my wife, every, every single time a girl was in my office, I swear, my, my wife called me and yelled. Like it, yeah. So Hugh Hefner, nice guy, I met him several times. He would just look, you know, he his pipe and his Pepsi, and he'd look at his. When I was there, there were events in his backyard. Was, every time I was there, there were events in his backyard. Some. In the daytime, some at night. He would just have a smile. He would just look at the gore everywhere you looked. There were pretty girls, uh, various stages of clothing. And he would just kind of like wink at me and like tap me on my shoulder. And I'm like, okay, God, you know, there goes God. There's this, this guy fulfilled any, any dream this man ever had is like, this guy fulfilled it. Yeah. It's definitely in, in one of the top 10 favorite books that I've read. That's what he told me. That, I, mean, I love the writing style. I, I love the surprises. And uh, I, I compare it to a little bit like John Grisham in the style. That's the way I felt as I was reading it. There was, I, I thought, well, where is this going to go? And then I got surprised. So good job. It's so sweet. That means so much to me. If you just put everything you just said, remember what you just said, because that was really good stuff. Well, we just recorded it for the podcast. Yeah. So there's my, there's world. Mark just gave me the best review. All right. Yeah. Well, Dan, great. Thanks for coming on. And we had a good chat and uh, I'll follow up with you. We'll, we'll be talking. Okay. Thanks for listening. For more of an intrepid adventure, go to markglenmore.com. This has been a Paul Robinson production. See you soon.